If you're just joining us, we are considering a single word and a phrase during the season of Advent, and that is waiting, waiting upon the Lord, which is sort of a easily a throwaway line, or we can have kind of a token nod to it, and we go, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, and absolutely have nothing to do with what we understand by that. What is that? Is that just sort of not giving up? Yeah, in part. But we think there's more to it than that, only because the Scripture suggests and shows us that there is more to waiting upon the Lord than just what we might ordinarily think. Last week, we let Job introduce us to the idea of waiting in the midst of suffering, and how waiting, especially then, is the hardest part. Our focus this morning has suffering in view, but it is focused in a particular direction, as I alluded to at the beginning of our worship service. Waiting is not just sitting or biding, it's waiting for something. And we began this service with a clip from The Incredibles, and that's light, and that's cute, and it's a way to orient us to our subject. But now let's get real. Now we're going to get real about what this waiting is really waiting for. need to panic. Oh, I thought I missed the flight. Uh, it wasn't for the delayed flight out of Denver. You would have. No worries. <sighs> okay. Well, how, how long is the wait? Uh, it's being cleaned. The crew's staying aboard, so it shouldn't be long. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you. <sighs> Thank God. Amen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you look like you've seen a ghost. I would have been a ghost if I missed that flight. <laughs> Marriage isn't that bad, is it? No, no, it's uh, my boss would have killed me, not my wife. Uh, I'm, I'm here on business. <laughs> oh, let me see. Uh, accountant or actuary? I'm both. How did you know that? Oh, dark blue suit, smart briefcase, and the AAA sticker on your bag. Oh, yeah, most people think I just drive around town in my AAA thing. <laughs> well, my husband is Georgia chairperson of the American Actuary Association. Is that right? <laughs> I know that. What's his I name? can't wait to tell him that I met another actuary. <laughs> you guys are rare birds. <laughs> Boy, that's true. As soon as he gets off that plane, I am going to introduce you and my, my son, too. I, off this plane right here? because It's like coming in from uh, Denver. Yeah, yeah, but the lady just told me that it's our... <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Take a look at this. What do you think? It's really nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's really nice. I know, I know. It's, it's kind of over the top, and I'm going to embarrass them horribly. But they have been on that camp fishing trip for so long, and I just can't wait to see them, you know? Are you flying to Denver, too, then? Uh, oh, heavens no, honey. As soon as they are off the plane, we are headed home. Yeah, but how did you do that? You got to meet people in baggage claims. Security uh, lets you through to yeah, here? Yeah, I know. I can't believe it. Oh, they are going to be so surprised. We're yeah. ready for boarding Republic Airlines Flight 58 to Denver. We'll be boarding for Ruby Republic Honors members and passengers requiring boarding assistance. Please proceed to gate 18 and have your boarding passes ready. <laughs> 
better hurry up or they're going to get flown back to Denver. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I've really enjoyed meeting you, but I, I got to board the plane. So. Hey, hey, could you ask that nice woman uh, to, to tell my, my husband and son to get off the plane and I'll get all my stuff ready here. Okay, sure. Thanks. Yeah, yeah see your boarding pass. Oh, Republic Honors would like to welcome our Ruby Honors guests. You may board. Yeah. Hey, um, that, that really nice lady, she, she, she asked me to talk to you about her husband and something yeah, about yeah, the, yeah, the plane. Yeah, I got it. To tell, you wanted me to tell her husband and son to get off the plane before they're flown back to Denver, right? How did you know that? I don't worry about it. I mean, look, does she have some sort of problem? Because she's really a nice lady and all, and I, I was just being... Yeah, yeah, get on the plane. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I just... I... Mrs. Rutledge's husband and son died five years ago on the way to the airport. Uh, uh, hey, hey, uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Rutledge, Ms. honey, uh, what did she say? Pom-pom too much? Uh, no, no, uh, she wanted to know your husband's first name? Uh, Gerald. Yeah, and my son is Gerald, too, the third, you know. Oh, my God, Gerald Rutledge. Oh, it's okay, honey. He's really a very nice Now man. boarding all seats, all rows. Please proceed to gate. Last call for flight 58 to Denver. No, 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 this is Gerald Rutledge. He died. I mean, like, he really like, died. I know, I know. Please get on the plane. She waits till this moment, and then things get intense. <sighs> Ma'am, ma'am, tell my husband and son... To get off the plane, I have a ham in the Security! <laughs> Tell Mrs. them. Rutledge, they're not here. Well, well go get them then. I've been, I've been waiting so long. I've been waiting so long. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> She's waiting, and that's the cruel irony. She's waiting for what she longs for, but what she longs for is not coming. But her mind is broken, and what she wants, we would all want, desperately. But the world as it is, it cannot deliver what she hopes for, what she sits for, what she's come for for five years in a row at the same day every year. That's what we're waiting for. For the longing that is unmet, for the world that is not yet, we need to consider afresh, what are we doing here? Why have we gathered in this place? Why are we singing these songs and praying these prayers? Why are we going to all the trouble? It is not just to be together, as important that is. It is not just to fulfill some sort of ritual obligation, some of which we're not even entirely aware of why we're doing it. 
we need to refresh our memory on what we're waiting for. And Paul is going to help us again today. We're going to look at a passage from Romans 8. The last time you know we looked at this was January 14th, 2020. Just before it got real again. There's been a little water under the bridge since then. We want to consider what precisely are we waiting for and then also, how does one wait properly for that? That's what we want to do. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to begin from what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. So I wonder if you might stand. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. As we'll keep hammering for the entirety of Advent, waiting is not merely biding your time. It is a quality. It is an inner kind of posture and frame. It is resting and trusting and remaining faithful in faith, hope, and love. Now, it is sort of like waiting for a bus. Uh, there is a way of waiting that is frenetic and panicked and unsettled. There is a way of having given up on waiting for the bus where you'll just go sit in the coffee shop, and if it ever comes, fine, but I will not waste another minute on waiting. Or there is a waiting that is more quiet, that is present, that is hopeful. But like waiting for the bus, you're waiting for something. And the question is, what are we waiting for? Look, everybody in this room, no matter how old you are, kid or adult, every one of you in this room has a worst day in your life. 
Some of you may be in that day. Some of you may be in the wake of that day. Some of you, for me to even reference the word worst day, may already have prompted in you memories of it from long ago, and now it feels like your return to the day. Paul, in this passage, is not saying to you, suck it up. Stop your belly aching. But he is saying this, whatever your worst day is, there is a day still to come in which it will be eclipsed. It will be like a firefly to the sun. The memory of it will not be eradicated or erased. But you will not walk with a limp any longer. You will not have deep sighs too deep for words. You will not think or speak with a shudder. The gospel of the Lord Jesus, which last week Job could not see but through a glass darkly. The gospel of Jesus, whom Paul has said as we've considered the book of Ephesians, is a mystery that was once concealed and now revealed. That gospel is this. In Jesus you are forgiven. Past, present, future, forgiven. You are reconciled to God and everything that is his is yours. That is the gospel. But what he has done for you in forgiveness and reconciliation is just a beginning. It is part of a much larger project that he has in mind, of which Jesus is the one to usher it in. And what is that project? What is it that you and I are waiting for? In a word, it's this, renewal. Transformation, refreshment. Look, you put in a long day's work or you go on a long run, you're weak, you're depleted, and nothing needs to tell you, gosh, I think I want refreshment. You just long for it, and you find it in whatever way has served you in the past. That is just a hint of what we mean here by renewal, but it is deeper and wider and more expansive and beyond our imagination. What's this renewal? Paul breaks it down into two broad categories, universal and particular. That which occurs at scale, in wide angle, without parameter, and that which is in tight and personal and unique. And I want to explore that as Paul does. What is the nature of this renewal that we ought to be waiting for? Let's talk about the universal side of it first. Four times, if you were listening, you heard one word, and it is the word creation. You heard about its condition, the effect of that condition, and what it is really longing for. What is that condition of creation we heard? We heard that it was subjected to futility. What do we think of when we think of the word futile. We, we think of something that is pointless, that the, that the effort given to it is worthless, that no matter how much we try, we, we find ourselves in the myth of Sisyphus, who is always trying to, ex, he's trying to escape that pit, and so he pushes the rock up higher, higher, higher to the edge that he might escape, and every time he just can't hold it up, and it rolls back down again, and he is stuck there. That's futility. That which we aspire to never obtains. That which we have for a season does not last. It's all dissipating. That's futility. The Greek word there for futility 
in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you might be intrigued to find, is the same Greek translation of the word in Ecclesiastes that is spoken most often by the preacher, and that is the word vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And if you've ever read that book, maybe especially during COVID, everything in every direction that he looks, anything that he puts his heart and his mind to, there's no guarantee. No matter how bright the prospects of it, when it starts, he knows things are dissipating. He understands the law that you heard in eighth grade physical science, the law of entropy. He knows how everything has a heat source, and where does that heat go? To a heat sink. It's the way of the world. It's the way of the universe. It is the way of futility. That's the condition of creation. And creation, Paul will say, he personifies it. What overcomes creation, what what comes over creation in the midst of that being subjected to futility by God himself, it is a groaning. It is wordless. Oh, but it communicates. This creation, subjected to futility, is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It is waiting for an end. There's a moment I'm about to show you in the two towers when the character Treebeard, who's Tree, he, he looks upon what, what men have done to all living things that of this, of this sub-creation. And, and men and, and wizards like Saruman have, have come and, and, and decide to despoil that which is of creation and to turn it into a machine and to exploit it and to deploy it for its own um, fiendish purposes and to deny it of its goodness and its beauty. And in this moment, you're going you're gonna to sense what Treebeard feels as a stand-in, as a as a mouthpiece for the entirety of Middle-earth. Listen. Many of these trees were my friends, creatures I had known from nut and acorn. I'm sorry, Treebeard. They had voices of their own. Saruman, a wizard should know better. It's the groaning of Middle Earth. It's the groaning of creation. And though that is a fantasy, it certainly resonates with what Paul imagines here about the creation as all we know, all, all non-human living things. That's, that's where it is. And it, it's, it's this awful paradox of creation, right? Because you, doubtless, every one of you in this room has gone to some place where you have been absolutely been awestruck at the beauty of what you see. You think, I am in Eden here, and it is a wonder But you also know that that which you look upon, which is full of beauty, is also accompanied by any 
number of things that is a competition, a, a battle to the death. You sit on my front porch, and you will look at the trees over next to my driveway, and there's one tree that I kind of keep my eye on. It's, I'm like, this is how nutty your pastor is. Um, I stare at this tree, and I, and I track the tendrils of, of vines, and, and Mickey could tell me what those are, tracking up the, the, the trunk of the tree, and what is it doing? It's growing, but it's suffocating that tree. It is taking the life out of it in order to live. I have no idea what it means for creation not to be that way. But it is groaning. And that is just one element that we share in groaning with all things. What is creation groaning for? Subject to futility as it is. One word, Paul says, it's freedom. Freedom from its bondage to corruption. Everything that begins strong is burning out or will be washed away. And whatever the antithesis of that is, the opposite of that is, that's what it is longing for. That that which is will remain. That it will be in submission to all that is good. That is this universal renewal. That is what we're waiting for. Now, what will that look like? I have no idea. I look out at all things and I, I have to ask myself, what does it mean that everything that I, see, that, I, that I feast my eyes upon is in some way enslaved to a kind of corruption? I don't know. But I do know this. What that renewal of all things will begin with, the ants, if I let that scene run, the ants... The rise up and take it upon themselves to overturn what the world of men had done to despoil creation. They take it upon themselves. That is not the vision that Paul was providing us here in terms of universal redemption. The redemption of all creation begins with the revealing, he says. The revealing of the sons of God. What, what is that? Is it like, ta-da, I give you. Sons of God, never before seen. No. He's talking about the completion of that which he has begun in those in whom have found Jesus to be Lord. They are the sons and daughters of God. They are the sons and daughters of the one who has come to build into them that which they originally were intended to do. What he's talking about here is the recovery of our humanity and the recovery of that story into which it was birthed. What am I talking about? You gotta, you gotta go all the way back to Genesis 1. What's the first command? Hey, Adam, Eve, here's the deal. Multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Not exploit, not use for your own good. It's not yours. It's on loan. Take care of it, make it better. That's a theology of ecology, Greta, right there. That's what you're going to know. You are entrusted with this place. Take care of it as the gift that it is. Full stop. Well, how does Adam and Eve respond? Hey, thank you. Appreciate the invitation. You know what? We've got this. In fact, we've been told we can be just like you and we won't even need you. That day ends badly. Such that following their choice, 
what follows in the story is banishment, is estrangement. And everything that was good has now become toilsome. Fast forward, fast forward a lot to just a few verses past our passage. What does Paul say the creation and we are waiting for? Who are these sons and daughters of God? Those, he says in verse 29, whom he foreknew he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. The revealing is finally those who have begun, had a good work begun in them, who have begun to demonstrate the picture, the aroma of Christ. Finally, finally they look like him. It's what John says in his letter in 1 John 3. Listen again. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him. And because we are like him, we will reign with him. And we'll be restored to that original mandate. This place is my father's world, and you were made for it, and it for you. Now bless it. Cultivate it. Use all of its raw material and turn it into something wonderful. That's our command. Oh my gosh, that sounds so out there. That sounds so high. What does it look like to live inside of that story? What does it look like right now, practically, to live inside of that hope? And we're going to talk about where it's going. What does it look like to live in the belief of this universal redemption? I have only been recently introduced to this musician named Nick Cave. Raise your hand if you any Nick Cave fans in the room. Yeah, okay, he's an Aussie, and um, I don't even I even have a classification for what kind of music he does. It's kind of cool. Um, he's a Christian, and he's lost two sons, and he just wrote a book about faith and suffering and loss. And in an interview uh, that he gave recently, he spoke of. Um, kind of what is his inheritance in, in his faith, as feeble and as frail as it is, as it would be for us were we in similar circumstances. And he talks about what has happened as a result of the suffering. And, and here's his story. The religious experience awaits the devastation or a trauma, not to bring you happiness or comfort necessarily, but to bring about an expansion of the self. That's Arthur's gift to me. That's his son, one of many. It is his munificence. I had to look that word up too. That means generous gift. It is his munificence that's made me and my wife different people. We've never felt more engaged in things. I say all this with huge caution and a million caveats, but I also say it because there are those who think there is no way back from this catastrophic event, that they will never laugh again. But there is, and they will. because they live inside of that story that has begun but is not complete. The story of a universal redemption. In God, even in suffering, it is possible to see an expansion of the self, to borrow Nick's words, rather than a contraction. We are made new despite our worst nightmare. In this universal renewal, 
a world has been made new because a new humanity has come forth to recover its story. And so you might summarize what that universal renewal looks like in the words of something C.S. Lewis said, and I, I reference him this week because it's his birthday this week. And, and this is a, a drawing by a fellow pastor in our denomination named David Cassidy who did that and posted that this week. And, and this is what Lewis said somewhere. The day will come when there will be a remade universe infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men. When we can do all things, when we shall be those gods that we are described as being in Scripture. To be sure, it feels wintry enough, still. But often in the very early spring, it feels like that. 2,000 years are only a day or two by this scale. A man really ought to say, the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday. Because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The spring comes slowly down this way but the great thing is that the corner has been turned. It has been turned because he rose again. We're, it's all hanging on that, friends. The universal renewal rests upon the resurrection of the Son. But as surely as that resurrection has implications for the wide angle at scale, it also, as I've said, comes in close into something very particular into something very personal. What is the particular renewal of which he speaks? It has an inward quality and an outward quality. You might have heard him say, and paused to hear him say it, what he says there in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Adoption you've heard of before. Adoption we spoke of back in Ephesians chapter 1. That's what he spoke. What is adoption? You have been chosen out of, for no other reason but out of God's own gracious prerogative, period. He wasn't impressed with you. He loved you. There's a difference. And as one who is chosen, you have everything that is his. You are earmarked for his inheritance. You have a seat at his table. That's what it means to be adopted. And he says, in Jesus, we have that adoption. So wait a minute. What is he talking about, about waiting for the adoption? How do you wait for something that is already true? I think you know the answer to my own question. There are days when you believe you belong to him. And there are days when you do not. Same with me. Whatever may be happening, I screw up royally. I fail at something, and what do I then believe? Failure. I am his, but then if, I, if it doesn't work out or if things are going poorly and everything is falling apart and dissipating because I'm subjected to futility too, what, what do I feel? Um, yeah, if I'm his, it's probably only begrudgingly at best. And that has a quality in us. That has an effect in us. That has an inner quality. You can tell me a hundred times, you are his, and I will say, I'm not sure. What is he talking about? I've just quoted you C.S. Lewis. Now let me quote C.S. Lewis's de facto mentor. His name is George MacDonald, Scottish pastor. We'll refer to him more in the coming weeks. 
But he said this. Many children who have learned to cry, Abba, Father, are yet far from the liberty of the sons of God. Sons they are and no longer children, yet they groan as being still in bondage. We are the sons of God the moment we lift up our hearts, seeking to be sons, the moment we begin to cry, Father. But as the world must be redeemed in a few men to begin with, so the soul is redeemed in a few of its thoughts and wants and ways to begin with. It takes a long time to finish the new creation of this redemption. You and I have glimpses and impressions and hints and rumors that we have divine welcome. And that is true, objectively, even though there are moments where we think it's a pipe dream. But what is this looking forward to in way of a particular renewal, an abiding, unremitting confidence that you and I are his, adopted, without exception, without interruption, without qualification. This particular renewal has an inward quality. But let not fail to say what we've already said. We need to say again. We probably should say it for 40 times. It also has an outward quality. The adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He loves flesh. He made it. He became flesh. He's God. And that flesh, when it died, did not see corruption. And when it rose, it did not rise as a spirit. It rose as flesh because he loves flesh. It is the redemption of our bodies to which this particular renewal looks forward. No more minds broken, longing for something that will not come. No more bodies broken that is longing to be embraced by the one that is sitting at the terminal and has good reason to believe that it will be here soon. And no longer hearts broken that is seduced into a number of idolatries and despair. It is the outward quality of this particular renewal to which we look forward. That's where it's going. That's where it's headed. How do we wait properly for that? What does it look like to wait for that at all? I mean, look, it's just out there. And I'm going to show you something in just a minute that I think really captures the, the metaphor and the challenge that we face. How do we wait properly for this? I'll end this very briefly in three ways. Paul has done us the service of the first way. He has allowed us, by telling us what to wait for, to set our minds on those things. We have to set our minds there. We have to pray our groans there. We have to find our people there. Let me take one of those very briefly in succession. You and I have to set our minds there. When we suffer, when we languish, our minds go somewhere. They don't go nowhere. They need to go somewhere. They need to go here. I'm going to show you a clip from Val Films, Castaway. It's almost over 20 years old. You know, Tom Hanks, he ends up marooned on an island 
and he's got very little prospect of ever getting home, what does he do? He keeps putting a picture of home in front of him. Now, you know that story. You know it does not resolve like you thought it would. But the idea still holds. Every once in a while, he needed to flip on the light to remember what home was, to remember what home was like, to keep his hopes set on home. Um, beloved and welcome guests, there's no way around living in this world subjected to futility, awaiting the renewal, both universal and particular, unless every once in a while, and as, as needed as often, to set your minds on home, on that renewal. Put the light on. Flip the light on. As often as you need, flip the light on. At the same time that you're flipping the light on, in your groans, too deep for words, hear again what he says in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Like I said last week, to wait upon the Lord in the midst of this struggle is beyond you. And he knows it. That's why he has given you part of himself. That's why he has given you the first fruits of the Spirit, the possibility of hope. You and I, on many days, will feel like this renewal is as likely as Tom Hanks thought he would ever get off that island. And that is why we flip on the light, and that is why we pray if we have no words, just our groans. The same groans that the Spirit utters on our behalf, because he understands. If you and I would wait properly for this universal and particular renewal, we have to set our minds there. We have to pray our groans there. And one last thing, we have to find our people there. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. To the saints. Paul always speaks of it as not a you people, it's a we. We all have this desire. We all have this longing. He speaks of not the redemption of a body, but the redemption of bodies, plural. He talks about sons and children of God, not singular, but plural. Friends, waiting is inescapably a we project. Not small we, a we project. Look, I'm an introvert too. And for those of us that felt like, I kind of like the lockdown. I am telling you, the project of learning to wait upon the Lord in the middle of struggle, you can't rest upon whatever that temperament you want to define it as. You will need people to remind you of things that you will forget. My wife found this cute little picture during the week. I don't know when this happened. I can only guess maybe it happened during COVID, but there's, that's in Italy, and by God, they were going to find a way to eat together. I, I wonder, do you, are you animated by the same longing to share the same story 
the same fellowship, the same goodness, the same hope, such that you would go to crazy creative lengths to make sure we were going to sit together, we were going to be in this together. And a lot of times that maybe requires those of us who are part of communities to invite those who have none, to make our homes open for them and our lives open for them. Because I know for darn sure they would love it if you set up a table across a balcony. This waiting is a we thing, as it is a praying thing, as it is a setting your mind thing. This is hope. It is a hope by faith. We don't see it. We can't see it. It is a, it is a hope, he says, that we wait for eagerly, meaning we, we want it to happen, and therefore it, it infects and affects our mind often, and we wait for it patiently. We don't give up. We don't give up even when it doesn't come. That's why we need those three ways of waiting properly. We need poetry. We need to know that even in the midst of our brokenness and a longing for something that does not have any prospects of ever being fulfilled anytime soon, that we are no fools for thinking that the way things are is not the way things will always be. I'll end on this note. It's from Tara Isabel Burton. You may remember her. We talked about a book that she wrote a few months ago, years ago. To hope is a kind of foolishness to hope for a narratively unsatisfying ending, to hope for an unearned joy that changes the entire genre of our lives, that brings comedy from ruin. It is to refuse any narrative of ourselves as uniquely heroic or uniquely brave because we can withstand the wickedness of the world. It's a quieter kind of bravery. The conviction that one day we might not have to. It may not be narrative, but it means instead poetry. That's the story into which we've been invited. That is the story he's given us a reason to hope for because he himself entered into it and challenged all conceptions about how it would end. He rose again and in doing so brought us forgiveness and reconciliation that he might give us a glimpse, a taste, and a hint of a renewal yet to come. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we will confess to you that many times, maybe most times, we feel as if the prospect of all of these things changing and being transformed and renewed as you would have them feels as remotely possible as it felt for that man on that island marooned. And so we would ask, that you would help us not to neglect to meet with one another as is the habit of some perhaps, that we might be refreshed as often as we need, that your spirit would confirm to us and bear witness with our spirit that we're your children and especially on the days where we have acted like anything but children. And that even in thinking about things that seem so outlandish, that somehow they provide for us a nourishment. Whether that moment is our desperate moment now or a desperate moment to come, we ask that you would teach us 
to set our minds here, to pray our groans here, and to find our people here. In the name of Jesus, upon whom we blame for this hope. In his name we pray. Amen.